Welcome to the Global Active Podcast. Broadcasting Global Active Thought Bombs. Exploding Global Active Mutative Materials for a Neo-Humanist, Post-Capitalist World. We're broadcasting from Nungabudja, also known as Perth, Western Australia, the most isolated city in the world. We look to the leadership and the ancient wisdom of Aboriginal elders, both past and present, and to other traditional owners around the world, recognising they are the caretakers of a repertory of knowledge that is essential to our continued existence now and into the future. With the Commons as our North Star and Peer to Peer as the Way, we engage with creative solutions, such as those being explored in movements for a new economy, solidarity economy, a proud all connected, parallel, interwoven, intersectional movements for social, economic and environmental justice. Together we strive for our individual and collective emancipation. Agitate. Educate. Organise. Create. Global Activity Radiates. It's my tremendous pleasure to be here in Fremantle, near the Fremantle Arts Centre with Nora Bateson. Thank you very much for being with me, Nora. It's nice to be here. A beautiful sunny afternoon. Just had the real privilege of being in conversation, in dialogue with some wonderful people at Murdoch University and with your wonderful work as an important central point around all those wonderful dialogues. I'm thinking that a wonderful way to continue our conversation in a way is just to have your reflections on that and I think in our final session this uh, tension we have between our urgency to be acting in this time and also the required mindfulness or appreciation of the depth of the complexity of what we need to respond to rather than react to. Yeah, well, this is um, this is part of the danger, right? Is that we? It's so easy to think that we are doing something that is going to change the system, that in fact just continues it. Uh, and of course, that's true because we are in what my dad called the double bind. So, in order to continue living our lives. Uh, we have to go to work, we have to take the kids to school, we have to think about retirement, we have to, uh, you know, that's that's a privileged version of the story. There are a lot of other versions of the story. But basically, um, continuance feels like continuing what we're doing. But continuance at another level requires absolutely that we stop doing what we're doing and live in another way. And that would mean really a complete rethink of, of what community is, what work is, what education is, how we think about family, how we think about health, how we think about food. Uh, certainly how we think about money and exchange. So I guess the, the, the hitch is that 
there's a kind of deep-seated habitual need to identify the problem and strategize a way to fix it. And the reason that's such a hitch is that all the problems, so to speak, that we are facing right now, we being basically humanity, um, are complex. Okay, so the wealth gap is a complex problem attached to culture, attached to ideas of status, attached to deeply entrenched patterns of industrialization and, and uh, climate change is, of course, you know, it's not a one, two, three. Um, is there a problem with the ecology or is there a problem with culture? Where's the problem? Um, and so on. So the thinking that it requires to actually meet those issues is a kind of thinking and noticing and responding that is ready to recognize, okay, and here's the gist, that if you have identified a problem in a complex system, if you respond directly to that problem, the indirectness, the distributed qualities of all the systemics that are taking place will actually go untended or worse, be further you know, extremized into further consequences of consequences of consequences. So, you know, you try to put, it's sort of the whack-a-mole problem, but actually it's far worse than that. I mean, it's, I often describe it in terms of the hydra, where, you know, when you're facing a, a complex problem and you try to chop off its head, you get five new heads. Um, so an example of this would be, um, I think we're seeing a lot of it, especially in the medical community right now, where uh, you get medication for one diagnosis and pretty soon you're taking meds to deal with the side effects of the meds of the side effects of the meds and so on and so forth. Um, so that's kind of an example of what happens when you treat the problem at a surface, direct, explicit level. But then when you try to talk about this stuff and get to it in a, in a way that is distributed, that expresses that, that diffused nature of, of a systemic complex, so-called wicked problem, then people say, yeah, but you're not getting to the point. We have to hurry up and just deal with the problem. Right? So it, it's kind of a, a paradox. Um, and if we don't keep doing what we are doing so that we can feed our children and pay our rent, we die. And if we do keep doing it, then we're on some kind of suicidal mission of not only our species, but thousands of others. So, here we are. Here we are indeed. So, I, one of the things, we had a little evaluation to fill out yesterday uh, at the completion of the conference, and I was motivated to do a little timeline between kind of now and... I guess what, you know, in my imagining, in I think there's perhaps just the, 
the tendrils or the tenuous beginnings of some consensus about um, what post-capitalism might look like and some people starting to recognise each other internationally and starting to work together towards that. It's very tenuous, obviously, but um, I think that's certainly something that um, gives me some hope at least. But even within the ideals of those you know, really interesting movements and there's, there is consciousness about this, um, is you know, tending to the relationships, tending to the complexity. And I just, for me, really coming down to relationships being such an important thing that we don't necessarily get this right um, in our space, let alone um, uh, in so many other areas of our society. But one thing that really come, I came away from this weekend is, is getting to uh, that future is going to require a whole heap of more warm data. So can you talk to us a bit about warm data and, yeah, whether you agree with my little rant there? So uh, I like your rant. <laughs> and um, I really like the idea of, of post-capitalism. I have no idea what it is. Warm data is... The definition of warm data is that it's... Okay, hold on. Definitions are always like crunchy peanut butter, okay? So the definition is that it's transcontextual information about the relationships that integrate a complex system. As a bit of a mouthful, and I know it makes your head hurt when you first think about it, but the concept is basically this, that any complex system, especially living systems, is comprised of multiple contextual processes in interaction okay so as an individual um, I am my culture I am my microbiome I am my my life as a mother my life as a daughter I am my life in Sweden where I live I am also my history in California or my history before that in England and my ancestors or I am my political identity, I am my sexual identity, I am all these different contexts and each context represents a whole field of different kinds of communication and interaction relational interdependent processes. Okay? Are you good with that? All right. Now, the, you could say the same thing about an ocean or a forest or an organization. All of those things are complex systems. That is, there are lots of relationships and contextual processes coming together to make it possible for there to be vitality in that system. All right. So, now, one thing is that we can pull those things apart and we can identify all the parts and study them. And that gives you one kind of information. Um, but that's not what warm data is. Warm data recognizes that it's only in relationship that those different processes can come together and form vitality. And if you want to understand or respond to the vitality or lack thereof in a complex system, the thing you need to get to is the relationship between the contexts. So, you know, it, this is about studying systemic uh, behavior and process, but not by listing stakeholders and getting data on each stakeholder. You might list the stakeholders, but then the question is not what's, how do you understand each one, it's what's the relationship between them. 
So do, can you sense the difference there? It's a, it's, a, it's a deep difference, and it's one that doesn't sit still. So it gives you a kind of transcontextual positioning, and that positioning is a, is a different way to reside in the information. Um, so, you know, in the 1600s, we had the scientific revolution, and, and there were basic kind of premises upon which the scientific methodology uh, was based. One of them was that you should be able to measure information. Another was that you should be able to be objective. Another was that you should be able to repeat the experiment and get the same results. But if you're looking at a complex system that is only vitalized by relational interdependencies, those are going to be moving and changing, responding, recalibrating, shifting in time. Maybe it's very slow time, maybe it's not very slow time. Um, and how are you going to respond to a complex system if you don't understand or have a sense of that vitality? So essentially, that's what warm data is. And it's, it's a different kind of uh, form of inquiry. And certainly in the group process that we played with, the warm data lab, it's a very different way of organizing and allowing uh, actually quite large groups of people to experience a shared and visceral sense of interdependency in our systems pretty quickly, which for me is interesting because I've been in the field of teaching systems thinking for a long time with between you and me and our listeners. Not a lot of success if you want to know the truth. You know, it's most of the time in systems thinking courses, the people who already understood understood better when they leave and the ones that didn't get it still don't get it. But that's not my experience with this. With the warm data processes and the warm data lab, people are, they're leaving with a shift. And that's so exciting. I love that. In what you just addressed there and sort of talking about complexity, my mind goes to, when you talked about human health, uh, an issue that I've been a long time involved with is uh, suicide prevention. And it's something that has been so transparent to me for a, a long, long time. The, you know, the huge complexity there, not just in terms for an individual in their life, but obviously a much larger context of uh, a world in crisis. I wonder whether... I know that you're going over to be speaking in Melbourne soon at a mental health talk. <laughs> yeah, just talk to us a bit more about, I guess, and if you've had any experience doing kind of uh, these warm data lab things around the mental health space, specifically suicide. I mean, it sounds like a really, really hugely valuable, important thing to be doing with, um, with people who are working in the space. Uh, yeah, I, I have been working in that space and um, it's a really interesting thing because uh, you know when you're talking about suicide prevention it isn't as though a suicide is necessarily a representation of one person's experience Okay, the isolation and identification of that event as an isolated event 
is a deeply erroneous notion. Um, there are, first of all, when someone takes their lives, their life, the blast radius of that pain is enormous and goes on for a long time. It's not immediately something anyone can make sense of or write off or heal from or carry on from that position. Um, and similarly, the notion that mental health is something in the psychology of one person is equally uh, absurd. So, um, what is it to be sane in an insane world? What is it to be healthy in an unhealthy culture? Uh, and, and I think between now and whatever, the next decade, that we're looking at times of extreme transformation and upheaval. And one of the most uh, immediate experiences of that change and upheaval and transformation is confusion. Um, and you might think that confusion is just confusing. Actually, confusion is really painful. It's really isolating. It's, it, it, the lines are blurring, fracturing, breaking. So I don't really know how any of us consider ourselves to be sane. I mean, you're sitting here, I'm sitting here under this lovely tree in a state of extreme privilege, okay? Um, and I don't think that we have, we're wearing or carrying or touching one thing that hasn't been made possible through the exploitation of other human beings and the exploitation of the biosphere that we need to survive. Uh, are we sane? Is this okay? I mean, if we start to really consider this, if we become sensitized at all to the destruction that we are participants in, how are we supposed to hold this? And flip side, if you desensitize to it, who the hell are you? And how do you live with yourself? Right? And there it is. Again, another double bind. That's a big one, that one. I, um, we could talk for a long time about around that kind of issue. But I wonder, just maybe to, to finish off, um, I mean, here in this part of the world, and we're talking about a, a suicide crisis, we have a, a massive suicide crisis, which is, of course, the result of massive of genocide basically and, and of uh, an ongoing colonialization uh, of our first nations people in this part of the world um, for me it seems really obvious that um, a world where uh, our Aboriginal brothers and sisters our first nations people around the world are contributing to the solutions that we face at the moment you know to me there's just no future without that you know, and i wonder whether 
how much in your work, how much in your, your, your father's work, um, we talk of this kind of uh, what I guess is a spiritual approach of uh, First Nations people. Uh, I don't want to open up a question about any religious dogma to you, but how much do you feel comfortable with that work and that word spiritual in association with the work that you're doing? Okay, so I'm going to just be really frank with you and raw, all right? And I, I have to tell you that every single thing that I do, every moment of my day, every piece of writing, every lecture, every time I feed my children or kiss my husband, everything I do is in relationship to what I would consider to be the sacred. For me, that sacred is the vitality of life. Um, I never talk about spirituality, except for to say that I never talk about spirituality. And I feel like I'm really talking about that a lot lately. Um, but I'll tell you why, and that is I've been around a lot of different flavors and approaches. And um, ultimately, I've, my sense is that that relationship is very intimate. And also that it goes someplace that words can't reach. Um, so, you know, there's seven billion plus people in the world. I would say there's seven billion plus versions of ways to be in relationship to the sacred. And what I am not so attracted to is the habit of using various doctrines, whether they be, you know, institutional religion or various, you know, uninstitutional forms, there are plenty, um, to justify and to leverage various uh, measurements of righteousness, rightness, and wrongness. Um, I'm not so attracted to that. And so for me, in my work, I, I, I work with Islamic peoples, I work with um, people who are interested in mindfulness. I work with Buddhist people. I work with Taoists. I work with um, Hindu. I work with lots of different people. Um, and I guess that my my sense is that for me, that's not where I want to put my words. Uh, the space in between, the liminal realm that exists between the tree and the grass and the earthworms and the soil and the bacteria and the seasons and the birds and you and me sitting under it, that space, that's where I live and work. And I consider that space to be absolutely sacred. Um, but the nature of its sacredness is kind of personal. In fact, it's very personal. Um, so I think an exploration of the intimacy that I have with that is absolutely essential. If we want to do systemic 
work, if you want to do something great for the globe, for your community, for your nation, for your family, I think that that really requires a familiarity with the most intimate sensibilities you have around what kind of food you eat or who you love or how you say hello to three lovely little children who have just come up to us. We Hi guys. Not no, no. <laughs> you are we are centralists. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's it for this episode of the Global Active Podcast. Check out globalactive.org for other interviews exploring post-capitalist thinking and praxis. My name's Karun Kaumann. Thanks for listening.